those who do not have the power over the story that dominates their lives, the power to retell it, rethink it, deconstruct it, joke about it, and change it as times change, truly are powerless because they cannot think new thoughts. True power lies with those who can control their own story. You are the story that you tell yourselves. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. It's easy to get um, stuck in the detail and in the process and, and forget that at the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then onto the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Our heritage has shaped who we are as a people and a place today. In this series, we celebrate the stories of Auckland, the Pacific, and beyond. I'm Mark Gosper, and this is the Heritage Talks podcast. Kia ora koutou. Today, we're listening to historians David Wong-Hop and Lisa Trutman discuss the implementation of a poll tax on early Chinese immigrants to New Zealand. An important part of their research was the discovery of a register transcribed by a customs official which helped provide a more complete picture of those whose lives were impacted by this policy. You can read more about David and Lisa's research in their book, Looking for a Better Life, the Chinese Poll Tax Certificate Records in Auckland. And you can find the book through Auckland Library's catalogue. Haramai tītahi ahua. Today's talk is really about the Chinese of Auckland. The Chinese of Auckland uh, comprise two components, or sorry, probably about three or four components. The first component was the people who arrived before 1882, which is when the, uh, when the New Zealand government had uh, passed legislation which imposed a tax on all Chinese arriving in New Zealand. Uh, it was a very simple tax. It was a tax of £10 per person to enter New Zealand. After a few years, they increased that to £100. That doesn't sound very much in today's terminology, but when you consider that £10, if you equate it to a, working, a tradesman working, say, 60 or 70 hours a week, would get between £1 to £1.10 shillings a week, uh, 10 pound was quite a heavy imposition. Um, later on, the wages hadn't increased very much. Uh, Anti-Chinese sentiment had increased, so the government increased the tax to 100 pound. In 1840, China had just been through um, a period of great civil unrest. The, the old empress and the dynasty was crumbling there were foreign powers uh, occupying different parts of China. And so the country went through many, many upheavals. And then 1842 was the Treaty of Nanjing, whereby in terms of the Opium War, uh, which was England versus China, England won and China lost, and China ceded Hong Kong to the British. But the, the Queen, or, or you know, England, gave the right to all Chinese people living in British territories, they had the same equal rights as British citizens. So this allowed Chinese, sorry, it gave Chinese the assurance that if they were in a British possession, they had the same legal rights as uh, British 
people, such as the British who came here to New Zealand. The problem when they brought out the poll tax, as they did in other countries, was that since there was this treaty here, how did they impose a tax? So they had to devise a way, and the poll tax was a result of that. Um, so anybody could come at any time, but because most of the Chinese, uh, say from 1860 onwards, many of them were from the rural villages, some from the cities, especially Canton and the rural area around that, they came from very, most of them impoverished backgrounds, and they were looking at coming here to get some money, find gold if they went south, make enough money and go back with money and they would then be uh, accorded great honour and respect for coming back with a lot of money and that would allow their family to be recognised and would give honour to their family. So that was their main aim. So most, in fact, most of the people who came here to New Zealand were single men, whether they be from age eight to 45, most of them were single men because it was such a burden on their family or their village to raise the money, to pay the tax, to buy the, the passage, buy the food when they're on board the boat, and also enough to live, that most of them could not afford to bring their wife or family. How did they keep track of this? They had a system of recording each person who came in, and there was a poll tax certificate which was issued to the person who came, and there was a counterfoil, or what we would call a butt, a bit like your check butt, those of you who use, still use checks. There's, <laughs> there's not many people, I'm told, who use checks these days, but it's a little part which is it's like a book, and you tear out the main part to give, and the other part records the detail. Well, since it was a government record, it had all the details that the government required at that time, which was the date of issue, the place of issue, the name of the person, where they had come from, their age. And I'm not quite sure if it had, I don't think it had whether it's male or female. Um, so these details were written on the body of the receipt, which was the poll tax receipt, and then it was also repeated on the check, sorry, on the counterfoil. Move forward to 1950-52, the government records, the many government records had been stored in a central location in Wellington, we call it the Hope Gibbons Building. It was before my recallable memory, I do not remember the fire, but there's newspapers, clippings, which say that many government records were destroyed in 1952 in Wellington. From our, what I call our collective Chinese memory, we have this memory that all the records, that is the counterfoil or the butts, had been lost in the fire. And only the Chinese miners or descendants had the copy of the original receipt, and they were relatively few and far between. And so we knew that some people had these receipts, and there might be this record which had been destroyed. So I was discussing just before I came in, I said it was like trying to find needles in multiple haystacks. You didn't know which needle you're looking for, you didn't know which haystack, but then the haystacks got burnt, which is the fire. What we didn't know, there was another stack of haystack in the adjoining field. 
And this is where Lisa Trotman, and I acknowledge and I know that she's a fabulous researcher, she digs up things that, anything, you know, and, and says, hey Dave, what do you think of this? So Lisa, please stand up. This is my colleague who found the register. She found it approximately about 18 months ago, and she said to me, hey Dave, I found something. I said, oh yes, Lisa, what is it? I found this book. I said, you're great, you know, what is it? It's a register. I'm thinking, well, you know, it's just another book. It's got a list. It's handwritten. And I sort of, yeah, okay, tell me more. What had happened in about 1930, a customs official, not part of his ordinary designated duties, had decided that he would handwrite, obviously on slips of paper, the names of each person from these books. And he wrote in what we call the register of Chinese who arrived in Auckland and had been stored away in archives. This was the missing part. This was the haystack in the other field. This was the second counterfoil. What we didn't know, because we'd never seen a complete Poltex record, was that there were three parts to the record. And so once we found that, Lisa and I, I, just, I said to Lisa, this is a very important discovery as far as records go for the Chinese in Auckland. This is a complete list of everybody who came in and paid the money. Each person who paid the tax was to hold and to be able to produce on demand this number to prove that they were legally entitled to stay in New Zealand. Of course, this later on became part of the when they left New Zealand and wanted to come back to New Zealand, they went back to China for a trip. They had to either produce this or cite this number that they, of their receipt, which would then entitle them to come back within a specified time as the law allowed. What Lisa and I did, we went out to archives and we checked each book, each entry, to make sure that the details that we had seen were in fact correct. Now, the spelling in the receipt is the way that the Cantonese pronounced their names in the 1880s to 1920, 1930. It is a Cantonese way of writing their name. And that is based upon what we would call the local dialect, China being a large area. They were grouped into regions and within regions, the cities and within cities down to villages in the rural area. And every area has a slightly different dialect, but this is the Cantonese dialect and this is the spelling as written by the customs official when the person had given their name. And so we looked at all these entries and some of them were uh, slight spelling mistakes, uh, there were different ways of writing the phonetics, so we attempted to honour the memory of these people by ensuring that the writing that we wrote down was in fact the Cantonese way of writing the sound rather than what is commonly known as uh, Mandarin Chinese, which is a northern dialect. And it's a completely different way of writing the phonetics. So this is the Cantonese way. So from this, we built up a list of approximately 2,000 names. Lisa, come and tell us a bit how you found the register and what, what work you did. I am a mad historian. 
and a, and a heritage enthusiast. And I've actually been interested in the history of the Chinese in Auckland, particularly 19th century, for quite some number of years. Got a number of articles on my time spanner blog along those lines. Every chance I get of checking Archway, the database for Archives New Zealand, for any new files which have been entered into Archway, and they are still entering files into Archway and, and doing the catalogue, it's still an ongoing process. If I see anything that's related to the, the Chinese in Auckland, anything to do with the history, next time I'm in Archives New Zealand, take the digital camera and photograph. Um, I've. When I saw this and just said it was a register of Chinese coming in, I thought to myself, oh, I'll go have a look. And yeah, it was a very small book. And as David was saying, it's alphabetical order. Um, it was also quite fragile. Uh, I think you can see by that cover that he showed you just before. Um, and it was something apparently that the staff at Auckland Archives New Zealand weren't quite aware was in their collection. Uh, it had been catalogued, of course, but nobody else had bothered looking at it. So I thought to myself, well, this is interesting. It's a list, a list of names, and I know how David is very, very, very interested in the names of the Chinese coming in, aren't you? Yes. Oh, yes. 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 Comparing. Yes. 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 Ah, I haven't forgotten your back there. Um, and it's basically, and I'm, I also basically my thing for the last few years that I have been knowing known David, and it's been quite a number of years now. Um, his grey hairs is due to me, you see. Occasionally text, look what I found. He was a much younger looking man when I first met him. <laughs> um, is, but I know he was, he, he was interested because of course he is descendant of Archie and so descendant of the 19th century Chinese that came into Auckland. Um, and I was just feeding him raw information. Hey, here's a few more names. And we also, David and I both um, faced the the, the, the mountain of difficulty of the anglicised Chinese names versus the real Chinese names. And as David's just been educating me, then of course the, the Chinese names varied over life as well, so all these different complications. So yep, I just thought, hey, this is interesting, took some sample photographs, sent it to him, thought myself, he'll either say, oh, that's okay, and then follow it away somewhere, and instead, he went nuts. He was extremely excited, man. I was so pleased. I thought myself, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, 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 like bringing something to my mentor and saying, oh, look. And then he says, oh, look. So, so, so that's basically it. Uh, it was serendipity in a way. Um, and I'm still basically uh, broad collecting stuff to do with Chinese heritage, primarily for the Auckland area. Um, but I've also been dealing with Wellington because this man, after getting this book, out on the Chinese coming in with the Auckland um, poll tax records, then decides he wants to do the same thing for Wellington. So yes, after Heritage Festival, I run out of completely run out of excuses uh, for not doing a summarised history of the Wellington Chinese. I will be doing it. Thank you. Thank yes, you. yes, I will be doing it after Heritage Festival. Push, push, push. Push, push, push. <laughs> there you go. So once we had compiled this list. It was a huge list, it was 2,000 names. And we had copied it down in chronological sequence as the books had shown us. And so my next job was to, uh, I like to sort of try to sort things out. So I turned around and decided we have to turn around and put them into some sort of order. So they have a given name, 
And sometimes it might be R, it might be R lum, it might be R C, it might be uh, Chong, C-H-O-N-G, which tends to throw up a red flag because there's not many Chinese surnames that have Chong in it. That's normally a given name. So when, you, when I'm looking through this, I'm looking through it with two different eyes. One is the Western eye, because I'm, I'm a fourth generation Kiwi Chinese and very Western, but I'm also thinking, is that a Chinese name? Does that ring a bell from any names that I've heard in the past? So, and I'm also looking at the spelling, because sometimes the TZs become TSs and the Zs become CHs and all these sort of possible permutations. And so we tried to correct and make sure the sound was right for the list. Once we produced this alphabetical list, then I had to turn around and sort it into alphabetical splits, like A, B, C, D. Having done that, I then recast it into back to the same order that they came out in, which is a chronological list. So that was reasonably easy because in a particular year, you would have so many boats come in. Then I had heard that there were Chinese had come through Sydney, but then there were other Chinese who came through from the west coast of America, those that came down through the Pacific. And in the poll tax certificate, often it showed where they last resided. So this gave an indication as to which route they had come through. So we built up a list of saying which Chinese came through Sydney, which came through Fiji, which came through from West Coast America, and the very early days, who came in directly from China. Having done that, it didn't really address the question of how do these people come? Did they come by sailing boat? Did they come by steamboat? How do they come? So then we had to try to identify the boats that they came in, and Lisa, being a very good researcher, came up with a description of the boats. So we put that in, into the book as well, showing the different types of boats and their names. That is basically it. But then I, it seemed to be that since these were the Chinese who arrived in Auckland, uh, there needed to be some reference as to the history of the poll tax and also some of the early Chinese families in Auckland. So we turned around and included that in our book. So the book itself was a combination of Lisa doing a lot of the work, me compiling tables, and getting into the form where it was reasonably easy for anyone to pick up, but also it was very much a researcher's tool. The reason why it became a researcher's tool is being part of the oral history movement, I was very aware that people would like a way to find the information that they want. So the alphabetical listing allows people to trace their grandfather or great-grandfather, as the case may be. If they know the year that he came, they can go through the list. What wasn't apparent in the early years, um, we heard that in 1920, Chinese came. Well, you know, that, to me, that was just a year. 1919 was before, 1921 was after. What was special about 1920? When I did an analysis of this, it turned out that about 30% of all the Chinese who came to Auckland arrived in that 18-month period. So this then sort of raised red flags. So off I go and I ask Lisa, what's so special about 1920? And it was a bit like, what would you call it? Two people in a dark, light, dark night on a lonely street where there's no street lights to sort of say, hey, what's in front of us? We didn't know what the significance of 1920 was. 
From 1840, all the people arriving in New Zealand were either of British stock, that is from England, Wales, and Scotland, and maybe the adjoining uh, islands. Other people who came to New Zealand were classified as aliens. The Chinese who arrived here were aliens, as were the Germans, the French, the Swiss, and everybody else. They were all aliens. They brought in the alien registration at a later point in time, and all the aliens had to register for that. When it came to the poll tax, you had to pay the money when you first arrived. In other words, you're on the boat for two or three months or six weeks, you arrive in Auckland, you have whatever tests and you pass that, but you also had to put down, before you set foot on New Zealand, your tax, the tax money to enter New Zealand. 1920, there was a dispensation allowed in the law that allowed visitors to come here, and in the space of six months, if they could decide if they wanted to stay, they didn't have to pay any entry tax. Of course, it had a requirement. You're not supposed to work. Well, when you're coming on and you've borrowed so much money to come here, you have to borrow your, your passage money, you have to borrow your tax, you have to borrow your food while you're on the boat, and also enough to survive for several months here in New Zealand. So, looking at it, there were these, you can't tell from the numbers, the serial numbers, but there was this huge number of Chinese that came here, they had six months to pay the tax, and they weren't supposed to work. So I'll leave that to your imagination, I will not make any statement here. So they had six months to pay, and believe it or not, most of them decided to stay. So you find that instead of one year on one page, everybody there, 1920 covers about eight or 10 pages. It's just list after list after list. And the boats that used to bring six or 10 people now had 30 or 40 or 50 Chinese because it was still governed by weight. There was a weight restriction. So 1920 was very much a standout year for Chinese. I need to point out that because the tax was so heavy, there were very, very few women who arrived in New Zealand. In order to identify that, my book then went through and said, where are the women that I can identify as, through their name, as being a woman? And so I produced a list. There was very, very few Chinese that came, sorry, Chinese females, whether it be a young baby or a married woman, very few Chinese women who arrived in New Zealand. Um, and so this merely points out that there was a very, 99% single men or married men who had to leave their wife in China, and they would go back and visit their wife. Was the poll tax initially meant to be a source of revenue for the government, or what? It was really trying to stop the Chinese coming to New Zealand that they brought in the tax. So it was really one of controlling the inflow of Chinese. After a while, I had a look at the money. They said, wow, this is a good source of money. And so you'll find that in the government records, there is a record of how much money is being paid via the um, migrants. Um, it, it doesn't occur for every year. It only occurs sometimes this question is raised in Parliament or it may be included in the census figures. Uh, there will be a list there. But it was substantial because New Zealand, being a colony, had to find some way to raise the revenue. So they raised revenue in one way. What started off as a poll tax became a very important source of revenue. So 
that's basically the story of the Chinese in a very sort of uh, over wide view without sort of bringing in too many uh, other angles. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the Talks page at soundcloud.com. Come back whenever you like and feel free to add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the Talk notes.